in Lebanon, which used to be the only majority Christian country in the Middle East. I come from Paris of the Middle East, or what used to be known as Paris of the Middle East. My 9-11 happened to me in 1975, when radical Islamists blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded, as they shouted, Allahu Akbar. I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months. And as I laid in a hospital bed, hooked up to IVs in both arms, going from one surgery to another, I would ask my parents, why did they do this to us? And my father would tell me, they hate us because they consider us infidels, because we are Christians. So I learned since I was a 10-year-old little girl, that I am wanted dead simply because I was born into the Christian faith and lived in a Christian town. I ended up going back home, but my home was no longer the home I left. I ended up living in a bomb shelter underground with no electricity, no water, and very little food in an eight by 10 room robbed of my life. I lived in that bomb shelter from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth, fighting to survive. The Islamists surrounded us to slaughter us, to take over our town. We had very little food to eat. In order to get some food, we would crawl out under the bombs and dig out dandelions and different vegetation that grew around our bomb shelter because it was the only greenery we had to eat. To get some water, we would crawl to a nearby spring, surrounded by snipers shooting at us, and we would crawl in a ditch, and what used to take a five-minute walk would take us hours crawling because snipers were shooting at us. And every time we left our bomb shelter, we said our last goodbyes because we did not know whether or not we're going to come back alive or dead. This became my existence. We heard stories of what was happening to Christians all over the country at the time. How Muslims were walking into Christian cities and slaughtering the Christians, crucifying the Christians. And as we huddled underground waiting for the world to wake up and protect us, my father would say, America's going to come and save the Christians in Lebanon. Australia's going to come. All these big Christian countries. England's going to come. France is going to come. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and the world forgot about us. I remember three years into our ordeal, we had one of our Christian friends stop by, one of our Christian militia, and he said to me, Brigitte, we heard a lot of chatter on the radios, and we know we're going to be attacked tonight. And he said, if I don't see you tomorrow, I wish you a merciful death, and he left. And I remember at the age of 13 years old, dressing in my burial clothes, waiting to die. I remember putting on my Easter dress, my Sunday best, because I wanted to look pretty when I am dead, knowing that when they come to slaughter me, there would be no one to bury me. And I sobbed as my mother combed my long black hair down to my hips and tied the white ribbon in my hair that matched the white daisies in my blue dress as I sobbed, begging her, I don't want to die, I'm only 13 years old. And there was nothing my mother could say to me. And we sat in the corner of our bomb shelter. We had a ceasefire for two hours. And my father opened up his Bible and he started praying. We held hands, and he started praying, I shall walk into the valley of death and fear no evil, for thou art with me. And my parents said to me, when they come to slaughter us tonight, we will create a distraction. We just want you to run towards the Israeli border and never look back. You see, we lived five kilometers from the Israeli border. And my parents said, we lived a long life. We are old people. You are a young child. We want you to run away. You see, my parents were married for 22 years before they were able to have any children. My mother was 55 years old and my father was 60 when I was born. 
Yes, God works miracles. I'm a testimony. Don't let that white hair fool you. <laughs> Thank God I did not have to make that decision that night. Because that's the night when Israel came in physically into Lebanon and established the security zone and pushed away the Islamists and the Palestinians away from our town and set up artillery bases on the hills surrounding our towns so the Islamists will not be able to get into us, to our town and slaughter us. And this is how we ended up living for another five years until 1982 when Israel invaded Lebanon, working with the Christians, trying to help the Christians take back their democracy and helping them expel the radical Islamic element out of the country. At that time, they kicked out Yasser Arafat and his cronies all the way out of Beirut and into Tunisia. And that's how we came out of the bomb shelter and back to rebuilding our lives. I ended up moving to Israel in 1984 and becoming a news anchor for world news in the Middle East, covering world events and reporting on world events. And as I read the news night after night, and this was in the 80s, from 1984 to 1989, when we really started seeing a rise of global Islamic terrorism around the world. As I read the news, I started realizing there was a pattern developing. Because no matter where the terrorist activity took place, no matter what continent, the name of the perpetrators were always Muslims. Ahmed, Muhammad, Hussein, Ali. The name of the victims were always Christians, Westerners, Christians and Jews. Terry Waite, Terry Anderson, Colonel Higgins, the Achille Laura, the TWA flight, the Pan Am flight. I can go on and on. As a matter of fact, in my first book titled Because They Hate, I list pages upon pages of all the terrorist attacks that have been perpetrated against America, where America hit the snooze button and went back to sleep. And I started realizing what I used to think was a regional problem between a majority Muslim Middle East trying to either kill or expel the minority Christians and Jews had become a worldwide problem. But the world was not paying attention. The world did not connect the dots. The world lacked imagination. And isn't this exactly what the 9-11 Commission report said to us? We lacked imagination. It's not that we did not know that Al-Qaeda wants to attack the United States. After all, they attacked us the first time in 1993 with the bombing of the World Trade Center. They attacked uh, the Kubar Towers in 1995. They attacked our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1997. They attacked the USS Call in 2000. And then they were so confident that we were so apathetic and so asleep that they came back and re-attacked the World Trade Center the second time in 2001. We lacked imagination. But right now, in 2015, we cannot say we lack imagination. After all, we have never been faced with an enemy that tells us exactly how they feel about us. They don't beat about the, around the bush. They don't have a hidden agenda. They not only tell us how much they hate us, they write articles about it. They sing songs about it. They issue press releases about it. They even issue video releases about it and send it to Al Jazeera to air worldwide. We cannot bury our head in the sand and pretend the problem does not exist. Amen. I ended up coming to the United States in 1989, leaving the Middle East and thinking I left all the crazies behind. But 9-11 changed all that for me. It made me realize that the crazies I left behind have come here to the United States. And this is why we need to be educated about this issue. So on September 12th, everybody, we woke up watching television and all the pundits and the, and, and, and the psychologists came on television and all the psychobabble about why they hate us and what did we do to offend the Islamic world. I can tell you very easily why they hate us. We are infidels, pure and simple. That's the reality we are dealing with. So why should we be concerned about the rise of radical Islam? Because as I'm speaking to you right now, 
There are 44 war raging around the world, conflicts between Muslims and non-Muslims, regardless what nation these non-Muslims live in, regardless what language they speak, regardless what color their skin is. 44 conflicts around the world. The national security issue is an American issue. It's not a Republican issue, it's not a Democratic issue, it's not a Libertarian issue, it's an American issue. America has been attacked under different administrations since 1979. It was attacked the first time under the Carter administration with the hostages in Iran. He was a Democrat. America was attacked again under the Ronald Reagan administration in 1983 with the blowing up of the Marines in Lebanon, a Republican. America was attacked again under George Bush senior administration. America was attacked again under the Clinton administration, a Democrat with the blowing up of the World Trade Center the first time in 1993 when they tried to attack the World Trade Center. It was also under President Clinton that the Taliban trained 10,000 Al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. Now, these people were not being trained for entertainment. They were being trained to attack the United States of America. And then, of course, we were attacked again under George Bush Jr. in 2001. And people thought, if we just get rid of George Bush and elect President Obama, all our sins are going to be forgiven. You can tell that has not happened yet. As a matter of fact, we not only are in a worse situation now, but we have arrested in the first four years of the Obama administration, only in the first four, 226 homegrown terrorists, 186 of them are Muslims. Now, we have a problem in this country when a faith-based group that accounts for less than 2% of the American population is responsible for over 80% of terrorist attacks and terrorist plots against America. This is the fact that America has to deal with. So why should we be concerned? Because what launched all this radicalism, Islamic radicalism, two things happened in the Middle East that changed the equation. The discovery of oil in the 60s and 70s, where we discovered the oil and actually were stupid enough to allow them to nationalize it, that gave them the money to spread their radical Islamic ideology worldwide. And the second thing that happened was the coming of Ayatollah Khomeini to power in 1979. That gave the Islamists the spiritual leadership and covering to explode worldwide. Now they have the money, they have the spiritual leadership, and they exploded. So, what is the organization behind all these terrorist organizations around the world? An organization that you're very familiar with, called the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood has started in 1928 and has 70 offshoot Islamic terrorist organizations in the world, including ISIS and Al-Qaeda. The head of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, was in our prisons in 2011 as a leader of the Muslim Brotherhood because he had not started ISIS at that time. Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is now the head of al-Qaeda, who replaced bin Laden, was in jail in Egypt and sent into exile as the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. That's why we need to be concerned about the Muslim Brotherhood has 70 offshoot organizations around the world. They wrote a plan in 1982, a 100-year plan for radical Islam to infiltrate and dominate the West and establish an Islamic government on Earth. In the counter-terrorism circles, this plan became known as the project. What makes the project unique is it gives tactics and proposals as to how to infiltrate the West, how to dominate it, how to, to set up nonprofit organizations and human rights organizations and maintain the appearance of moderation in order to advance the radical Islamic agenda in the West. They talk about how to set up rec centers and institutions in the ghettos and in inner cities and begin recruiting from that segment of society. They talk about how to get the democratically elected Muslims on all levels in the West. They talk about how to get Muslim interns in political offices in the West so they can have a bird's eye view as to how policy is done on the highest level. 
They started implementing the project in Europe in 1982 until now. In the last 30 years, we have seen Europe morph from Europe to Arabia. Today, they are starting the same thing in the United States. I am holding in my hand the Muslim Brotherhood plan for the destruction of the United States, written 5-22-1991. The title of the plan is مذكرة تفسيرية للهدف الاستراتيجي العام للجماعة في أمريكا الشمالية. You all got that? There will be a quiz. It is titled The Muslim Brotherhood, uh, an explanatory memorandum for the general strategic goal for the group, the Muslim Brotherhood in North America, written 5-22-1991. This plan was presented as evidence in the Holy Land Foundation trial, the largest terrorism trial ever in the history of the United States, where our government handed down Hello, my best friend, where our government handed down 108 guilty verdicts for Muslim Americans and Muslim American organizations raising money for, to support terrorist organizations in the Middle East to the tune of millions. And I'm just going to read you a paragraph of this plan, so it'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. They talk about the settlement in the United States. Understanding the role of the Muslim brother in North America. The process of settlement is a civilization jihadist process with all the word means. The Akhwan, which is the Arabic word for brothers, must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and Allah's religion is made victorious over all other religions. Is this clear? They don't mince words, do they? But the most important page of this document is the last page. Because in the last page, they list 29 front Islamic organizations set up in the United States with the specific goal of sabotaging America from within and destroying America by our own hands. And I'm just going to name a few. Number one on the list is ISNA, Islamic Society of North America. And if you're familiar with ISNA, it's because they are now advisors to President Obama about Middle East policy. So we not only have the Fox watching the Hen House, we have the Fox inside the White House dictating policy in the ear of the President. Number two on the list is the MSA, the Muslim Student Association. The Muslim Student Association has more chapters on American college campuses than the Democrats and the Republicans combined. Number eight on the list is Nate, the North American Islamic Trust. The North American Islamic Trust owns the deed to over 90% of American mosques in the United States. That is a problem. Now, what makes this very important, and I'm going to focus in the last three minutes, five minutes on education, is to show you how they set up every organizations in this plan to destroy America, focusing on every sector of our society. Organizations focused on publishing, organization focused on media, organization focused on education with the strict purpose of doing sabotage to America from within. And I'm not talking military. We know that ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all the others want to do attack the United States and do damage to the United States. As a matter of fact, we in the United States have 150 terrorist organizations right now operating in America. Five of them are operating right here in the District of Columbia. And our government, and these are the ones we know about. But well, I'm going to focus on the education real quickly because I want to show you how they wanted to change our country from within. First, they started focusing on colleges and pumping millions of dollars into our college campuses, setting up Middle East study department and political science departments, and appointing professors to teach children that Israel is evil, America is bad, and the Islamic world is the underdog. And to give you an idea of the Peddling that has taken place on our universities, I'm going to share some numbers with you. $20 million donated to the University of Arkansas by the King of Saudi Arabia. $22 million donated to Harvard University. 
28.1 million to Georgetown, 5 million to MIT, 1.5 million to Texas A&M, 5 million to Rutgers University, 5 million to Columbia University. Other recipients of Saudi-tainted monies include UC Santa Barbara, John Hopkins University, Duke University, American University, UCLA, Howard University, and I can go on and on. From the Ivy League to the community colleges and everything in between, we pump the gas and they pump poison into the hearts and minds of our future generations. And that's why we must become energy independent tomorrow. The strategy worked so well on college campuses, they said, why wait until the kids get to college? Why don't we start with them in middle school? And so they introduced the Islam Project. The Islam Project introduced a course where they teach students Islam for three weeks, how to adopt Islamic names, memorize and recite the Quran, and go to a, to a mosque on a field trip. And when you hear what's happening in our school systems, you will be petrified to understand some of the things that they are doing with our students, including one of the things that students have to recite is the Shahada as a part of their education. And the Shahada is the equivalent of uh, the I accept Jesus into my heart and Savior um, when, when students convert to Christianity. Here's what they're teaching little Johnny and Sally in public schools to recite. Praise be to Allah, Lord of creation, the compassionate, the merciful, King of judgment day. You alone we worship and to you alone we pray for help. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those whom you have favored, not of those who have, gone, who have incurred your wrath, which is the Jews, nor of those who have gone astray, which is the Christians and the atheists. This is the type of education taking place in our, in our public schools right now. Act for America did a study for two years where we analyzed 38 textbooks across public schools across our nation. And the study was unbelievable. All the mistruth, all the lies that are being put out. The total study is on our website for you to understand. We titled the report, in the Education or Indoctrination? The Treatment of Islam in 6th through 12th grade American textbooks. You can go to actforamerica.org and read the full report about what's happening in our education. The full report is 220 pages. The executive summary is 30. And for those of you who were taking notes about the Muslim Brotherhood for America, this one is also on our website. I encourage you to go to our website, actforamerica.org, and um, read it. We must come together as a nation. We must throw political correctness in the garbage where it belongs and start speaking the truth. Because we can be the most prosperous nation on earth. We can have this, we can have that. But as September 11th, 2001 proved to the world that a handful of 19 crazy radicals brought America down to its knees. We stopped. Our air traffic control came to a screeching halt. Our skies were empty. We were mourning. We were as a nation in mourning, collectively, united. It didn't matter what color we were, what language we spoke, what background we came from, how many years we've been in America, whether we were first generation or third generation Americans. Because our lives changed that day and turned upside down. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine last night and we were talking about how we used to be able to walk to the airport, to the gate, to welcome our loved ones as they stepped from the plane, carrying flowers and welcoming them. Or how you had just pick up your bag and go straight, there wasn't a security line when you're flying somewhere and just go straight to your plane. Things have changed so much. My own children do not remember a day where we could walk to the airport like this. It's a new world, and it's a new world that we must fight to preserve because America and the West is facing a die-hard enemy that is dedicated to our destruction. And I want to make very clear as we talk in this uh, uh, um, conference that we are talking about radical Muslims. There are plenty of moderate, wonderful Muslims throughout the world. But their voices are not heard. They are not the ones who are doing the killing. 
And we want to empower and give voice to those who are standing up against the radicals, like Rahil Raza that you're going to hear from her this morning. An honorable woman, a Muslim woman, who stands up and says, no to Sharia law, you're not going to oppress me as a woman, I immigrated to the West and I love what the West has to offer. Those are the type of reformists we want to empower. Which leads me to the most important subject that I'm going to open up with this morning, which is a subject that's on the mind of many Americans and many in the West, but particularly in America. And that is the subject that is driving the election this year national security and the refugees coming to the United States, our immigration, tightening our borders, protecting that what we have until we can figure out what is going on, who's coming to our country, and whether or not they are coming here to assimilate and to follow the American dream, or they are coming here to siphon off of our system and bring down our nation, not to mention the terrorists who want to do us harm. This is a very important issue, and I thought about all the wonderful immigrants that came here to this, to this place, to America. America the dream. People from all over the world aspired to make it over here, me included. And I thought, I'm going to use my own example as, as somebody who has first-hand experience, who's gone through the process of, of immigration, of coming here as a legal immigrant. I came here by marriage. I married an American citizen, and that's how I ended up in this country. So I feel I can shed a light about the immigration issue different than somebody who never experienced this process. You see, America is and will always remain a beacon of light to the world. People want to immigrate to America if they have the chance, not to any other country in the world if they have a choice. America is it. The immigrants that came here from the beginning of time, whether they came on the TWA or whether they came on the Mayflower, whether they were refugees like the Holocaust refugees who came here to seek refuge from religious persecution or immigrants who wanted to come here seeking a better life. Everybody wanted the dream. Everybody wanted to be a part of this great nation, me included. The early immigrants that came here, including me, who came here 27 years ago, when I came here, I wanted so much to be an American. As a matter of fact, I wanted so much to be an American because I used to watch television as I was a teenager sitting in a bomb shelter, underground in a seven by 10 room, eight feet underground. And we would watch television on a black and white battery, uh, on a black and white television operated on a car battery because we didn't have electricity. And television was my window to America because I would watch American programming and I would watch The Love Boat and Dallas and, and, and clips of American news. And I was always impressed how leaders talked to their citizens, how they valued their people. I was always impressed at the opportunity of America, at the freedom in America, at the possibilities in America. Somehow I ended up with an American flag that I put under my pillow, one of those little small flags, and I cannot recall how I got that flag. But I remember that flag being with me in my bomb shelter. I was around 13, 14 years old at the time. And I remember looking at that American flag thinking, one day I'm going to make it out of this hellhole and make it to America. I could tell you at the age of 19 years old why I wanted to come to America. At the 19 years old, as a Lebanese, I can tell you about America's exceptionalism. What are the possibilities in America? I remember sitting with my father watching the Apollo going up to the moon and the American flag being planted and me saying, wow, look at these people. It's amazing. They're so smart. They're so special. They can do amazing things. I want to be a part of this movement. I want to be a part of this incredible, charismatic, spiritual awakening of the world, awakening of the individual, awakening of the spirit that in many countries in the world, it, it oppressed, it is crushed, it is walked on. I wanted to be a part of America. Plus also as an Arabic woman, I did not want my kids, my girls, if they ever go back to Lebanon, to be told as is customary when a daughter is of a teenager of marriage age and she grows up and somebody comes to visit you and they offer you and you offer coffee. It's the girl's duty to offer the coffee. It's kind of showing her off to the public because she's now on the marriage market. And the thank you, instead of saying thank you to a girl, they say, Allah yustur alayki. May Allah cover your shame, meaning with a husband. And I was never going to have my daughters visit Lebanon ever one day 
and even understand if somebody ever said to them, Allah yustur alayki bi'aris. May Allah cover your shame with a husband. And the shame being the fact that they were women or girls. Because the fact that you exist as a woman is shameful. That's the Middle East. That's the Islamic culture. That's how they think. That's the, spoke, the unspoken stuff they don't tell you about in the West. Because everybody wants to keep appearances and don't talk about these things. And when I applied to get my green card, I had to study a two-inch thick book about, from the Daughters of the American Revolution about the history of America, the Constitution of the United States, our judicial system, everything that had to do with America and what makes America great. And I had to pass a written and an oral exam in order for me to become an American. No easy pass. And I gladly paid for it, and I gladly went through it, and I counted the days to become an American. And I became an American in 1994. What a blessed year that was. This is what the West is dealing with today. This is why talking about this issue and the decisions that we make today are very important because all you have to do is look at Europe and what Europe has done. It is important to know who's coming into our country and why they're coming here, who they are, what they believe, because the consequences of not understanding this very important point will lead to our demise just like it led to the demise of Europe. Just look at Europe today. Europe has become Arabia. Germany is falling apart, France has fallen apart, Belgium, Switzerland, you look at these nations. Look what's happening with these nations. So we want to make sure we do not make the mistake that Europe has made because there's no turning back. Once you open up the floodgates, there is no turning back. Now, a lot of refugees are coming into the country and a lot of people are talking about refugees and worried about refugees and thinking, oh my gosh, who is coming into this country and why? And here's how the process worked because everybody's concerned about it. You know, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs released a poll in August and they say that only 30%, 36% of the American voter support refugees coming into the United States. Only 36%. So don't buy what you're watching on the media. Ah, oh, we want to bring as many refugees as possible. No, we don't. The majority of the American public does not. Despite what the media is telling you. Now, how does the process work? The United Nations decides what refugees come to the United States. The United Nations Commission on Refugees decides what refugees come to the United States. Not America. But why should we be concerned about these refugees we are bringing in? And while everybody is thinking terrorism, at this point I'm going to talk about the cultural impact, the societal impact of these refugees coming here. Now we've heard from Europe about the rape and sexual assaults that these refugees are perpetrating against women. This is the top news from Europe right now. We all heard about what happened in Germany on New Year's Eve. Remember over 1,200 cases of rape and sexual assault? that the German government even tried to cover up because they did not want people to know what the refugees are doing? Actually, just this past Friday night, there were some holiday in Germany and there were like some celebrations, some festival where they celebrate in different pubs. Four women were sexually assaulted and the German authorities are saying this is just the tip of the iceberg because we do not know what happened in other pubs as well by the refugees. So why should we be worried here? in the United States about the refugees. And right now, I'm gonna just go over some cases of rape and sexual assault that we have experienced right here in the United States by refugees that we already brought in America. I'm not talking terrorism, I'm talking sexual rape and assault. Lowell, Massachusetts, a 13-year-old girl was twice groped at a public pool by a 22-year-old man freshly imported into the community from Syria as a refugee. Twin Falls, Idaho, a five-year-old girl was raped by three Iraqi and Sudanese boys who were important less than two years prior. Leesburg, Virginia, a West African refugee attempted to rape a college female by the dumpster at her college complex. Roanoke, Virginia, four refugees were indicted for plotting to kidnap and hold local rich women for ransom. 
Utah, a Burmese Muslim in the United States for one month, brutally murdered a seven-year-old Christian girl. Al Cajun, California, a Muslim man performed an honor killing on his wife and blamed it on Islamophobia. Mapleton, North Dakota, a Somali refugee beat and raped a North Dakota woman while chanting Allahu Akbar. This is the type of difference of values. This is the pattern of disrespect that these refugees are showing to our women and children in our society. This is their detesting our Western values and everything we hold dear. And here I'm going to use an example about the Burmese we are importing to our country. Now, a lot of people are thinking Syrian refugees. A lot of people are not paying attention to the Burmese, for example. But I'm going to talk about the Burmese refugees, not Syrians, to show you the difference between the value and the cultural system of these refugees that they are coming from. I mentioned the case in Salt Lake City, where the Muslim Burmese brutally raped and killed a 70-year-old girl. The examiner said she died in excruciating pain because of the rape. Shame on the mainstream media, who never uttered a word about it, only in Utah. And the reason why I bring this Burmese example is because last week a Burmese refugee in Australia was sentenced to jail for raping, viciously raping a 10-year-old little boy. The convicted Muslim man said it was culturally acceptable in his society to rape children where he came from in Burma. They do not look at it as rape uh, and we see this pattern in using children all over the Middle East, all over uh, Islamic societies. What is the world's most dangerous ideology? In the first part of the 20th century, the answer was fascism. First manifest in Italy in the 1920s, and then in Nazi Germany and in Imperial Japan. It took a world war and 50 million dead to stamp it out. In the second half of the 20th century, the answer was communism. Between the Soviet Union, Mao's China, and their client states, at least 100 million people were killed in its wake. Today, the answer is Islamism, a radical and often violent form of Islam. Like fascism and communism, Islamism is totalitarian in nature. The state controls everything. Also like fascism and communism, Islamism is inherently expansionist. It always seeks to get bigger, cross borders, and bring as many peoples as possible under its control. And like fascism and communism, many of Islamism's adherents are prepared to kill to achieve its aims. Those aims are antithetical to everything Western and other free societies stand for. Free speech, free enterprise, freedom to practice or not to practice any religion, freedom of assembly, a free press, and, of course, fundamental human and civil rights for all their citizens. Islamism completely rejects the Western principle of separating religion from government. In its view, governments are legitimate only if they rule according to religious law, in Islamism's case, Sharia, Islam's extensive body of sacred laws. Sharia is based on the teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah. The Quran is believed to be the literal words of Allah as revealed to his prophet Muhammad in the 7th century. And the Sunnah consists of the words and deeds attributed to Muhammad. Islamists interpret Sharia to hold that anyone born Muslim must remain Muslim and face execution if they convert to any other religion. That adulterers must be stoned to death. That anyone who insults Islam or Muhammad must either be severely whipped or executed. And that thieves should have a limb cut off. In addition, Islamists condone polygamy and child marriage. These beliefs are being put into practice right now in, among other places, Iran, the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, the Muslim parts of Nigeria, parts of Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and wherever else Sharia has established a foothold. If Islamists were content to live under strict Sharia law in their own communities and leave everyone who doesn't want to live that way alone, they wouldn't be a threat to the rest of the world. But that would not be Islamism. Islamism wants the entire world governed by Sharia, and anyone who opposes Islamist expansionism is the enemy and must be destroyed. That of course includes the United States, all of Europe, and Israel, but it also includes fellow Muslims. Indeed, Islamists have killed far more Muslims than members of any other group. So how many Islamists are there? Nobody knows for sure, but we can make some conservative calculations. There are approximately one and a half billion Muslims in the world. How many of these are Islamists? A 2013 Pew Research poll offers some clues. 86% of Muslims in Pakistan, 80% in Egypt, and 65% in Jordan support the stoning of adulterers. 79% in Afghanistan, 62% of Palestinians, and 58% in Malaysia, considered a moderate Muslim country, support the death penalty for Muslims who convert from Islam. 
If only 10% of the world's Muslims are Islamists, and the percentage is likely higher, that's 150 million people. Among these, how many are willing to take violent action to enforce their Islamism? Here we're talking about Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, the Taliban, Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, and other groups that send suicide bombers into markets, explode car bombs at funerals, throw acid in the faces of girls who attend school, murder sisters or daughters who defy the will of a brother or father, or who fly hijacked airplanes into buildings. This is a very hard number to pin down. So let's again be cautious and say the figure is only 2% of that 150 million. That's still 3 million people, 3 million potential terrorists organized by a common ideology and supported by many more. The good news is that hundreds of millions of Muslims are not radical Islamists. Just to cite one example, the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood governed Egypt for one year in 2012. But enough Egyptians were so outraged by the Brotherhood's harsh imposition of Sharia law that they staged perhaps the largest demonstrations in human history against the Muslim Brotherhood and brought that government down. Since the beginning of the 20th century, every generation has been confronted with a lethal threat to freedom and fundamental human rights. Free people defeated the last two totalitarian threats, fascism and communism. If we want to preserve freedom, we, non-Muslims and Muslims alike, will have to defeat the threat of our time, Islamism. I'm Raymond Ibrahim, author of the Al-Qaeda Reader for Prager University. Can you name this country? It is the fifth largest democracy in the world. It has nuclear weapons and is home to millions of religious extremists. It is both a leading fighter against and a major supporter of terrorism. The answer, of course, is Pakistan. Its unique makeup poses a question that should preoccupy everyone. Can two diametrically opposed forms of society, a free one and one based on religious, Sharia, Islamic law, exist in one nation? A very disturbing true story gives us a possible answer. On January 4, 2011, Sulman the former governor of Punjab, the nation's most populous province, had lunch with a friend in Kosar Market, an upscale international series of stores and restaurants. I lived only a few blocks away at the time. Throughout his career, Tasir was outspoken in his belief that freedom, democracy, and pluralism were inseparable, and that all religious minorities should be protected. Such ideas, however, are anathema to extremists. As a consequence, over the years, Tasir had received numerous personal death threats. I knew him, I interviewed him, I spent time with him. He showed extraordinary courage by refusing to be silenced. After lunch, the governor left with his aides and his bodyguards and headed toward his car. A small crowd had gathered and Tassir waved to them as his driver opened up the rear door. Without warning, a member of Tassir's own security detail stepped forward and opened fire with a machine gun, not more than 10 feet away. Solman Tassir was struck with 26 rounds and he died where he fell. This is how extremists deal with those whom they consider to be a threat. They kill them. But our story doesn't end there. When the assassin Mumtaz Qadri entered the criminal courtroom in Islamabad, he was met by cheering crowds who showered him with flowers. The cheering crowds believed that Tasir had deserved to die. To many Pakistanis, he had insulted Islam by advocating democracy and freedom for all Pakistanis, irrespective of their religious views, and by speaking out for the rights of women. In the following weeks, Pakistan's Islamic parties led marches and demonstrations of upward of 40,000 people honoring Mumtaz Qadri, the assassin, and celebrating Tasir's death. What was even more disconcerting was that Pakistan's moderate political leaders remained silent. They issued statements acknowledging Tassir's assassination, but not one stood up and decried the murder of this brave and honorable man. The trial was held and Qadri was found guilty of murder. But it gets worse. After the verdict, there was an enormous uproar against the judge, who received so many death threats that the poor man had to go into hiding. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Pressure from extremist groups eventually forced the government to suspend the case indefinitely. In essence, the judge's decision was undone. And at Tassir's funeral, which I attended, organizers were unable to find a single religious leader 
to preside over the event. The extremists had sent a clear message. Anyone who opposes them could be targeted for death anywhere and at any time. Stories like this are not uncommon in Pakistan. Despite Western hopes, democracy does not necessarily moderate Islamist party platforms and ideologies. On the contrary, Islamists can become even more extreme in democratic settings, at least in the short term. Here's why. Islamist parties are not monolithic. They are diverse and must compete hardest against one another for political power. To increase their appeal to the electorate, each party claims to most authentically represent their religion. This can lead to murder, as the case of Sulman Tassir demonstrates. Ironically, however, this competition among the Islamists is a sort of a blessing. It prevents a unified Islamist front that would make theocracy possible. Democracy survives in Pakistan, in other words, because the Islamists split the vote. This split buys the forces of democracy some time. But in order for democracy in Pakistan to prevail, the moderates, and that still means the overwhelming majority of Pakistanis, must show the kind of courage that Soman Tassir did. They must stand up to the Islamists and hold the country together until the flames of religious extremism die out. Right now, the numbers still strongly favor those Pakistanis who believe in Western ideas of pluralism. Hopefully, those numbers will grow as the inevitable moral and economic failure of extremism becomes clear. Very hopefully. Because if the extremists prevail, the world's fifth largest democracy will become the world's largest terror state. What drives someone to become a religious extremist, even to the point of becoming a suicide bomber? Like most people, I assume that there were two overriding answers, poverty and ignorance. The poverty line goes like this. Grinding poverty from which there appears to be no escape fosters seeding resentment against those who have more. If your choice is to die a martyr or die a beggar, martyrdom is the clear winner. The ignorance lines goes like this. The poor have no chance to get a decent education and thus are susceptible to easy manipulation. Clever people play on their prejudices and superstitions. Once the extremist gets this ignorant, poor person in his grasp, indoctrination is easy. Since there's plenty of poverty and plenty of ignorance around the world, that's a lot of people to draw from. This is how the source of terrorism is explained. Then I went to Pakistan and actually lived in the world from which extremists recruit, and I found something much different than I expected. Poverty had little to do with who became an extremist, lack of education even less. Many of those that I met who subscribe to religious extremism and are prepared to murder and die for their cause are from the middle class, and many had a university education. These are not poor people, and these are not uneducated people. They are well-fed and well-read. So if poverty and ignorance don't drive people to extremism, what does? One is a desire for meaning and for order. Places like Pakistan are submerged in chaos and corruption. Islamists promise clear-cut solutions to every problem. Here's how things will change if you follow these rules, and only these rules. Another is a desire for change. The old corrupt order, the narrative goes, must be overthrown, and that can only happen through violent action. Again, it is Islamists that step in with a promise to create a new form of government. Then throw in a strong sense of victimhood, we are not responsible for the sorry state of our country, others have brought us down, and you have a toxic brew that many willingly imbibe. These, of course, are the same easy answers that tyrants and demagogues, from Lenin to Mussolini to Hitler to bin Laden, have always offered their followers. I saw this played out one day while living in Pakistan. After one of the many assassinations of a major figure there, I was sitting with two middle-class parents. The father owned a small business, and the mother was a nurse. They had given their son a good life. He wanted for nothing. They told me that during dinner with the family a few days earlier, their son noted how the person who was murdered deserved to die. Why? Because he had spoken out on behalf of religious minorities. They were shocked. How could their son, who'd been educated and well-raised, think that? This story is all too typical. So what to do about this extremism? The first step is to get off this false narrative that this is first and foremost a poverty or education issue. 
The second is a take on the narrative of the extremist groups. They promise a better way, but what in fact do they deliver? The answer is always more death, more suffering, and more poverty. In other words, young people need to see these extremist groups for what they are. Only then will recruitment numbers begin to go down. Third, the media have to stop treating extremists as freedom fighters, a narrative that is all too common in places like Pakistan. Fourth, teachers and parents cannot assume that just because they reject religious extremism, their children and students will too. Middle-class parents and teachers have to be vigilant in instilling moderate, pluralist values in their children. Fifth, politicians have to stop blaming their country's problems on the West. And have to confront the endemic corruption that destroys countries like Pakistan from within. Six, and probably most important, Islamic religious figures have to stop looking the other way, or worse, glorifying so-called martyrs—Muslims who murder innocent people, almost always other Muslims in the name of Islam. Muslim religious leaders must promise these murderers eternal damnation, not some sort of twisted heavenly bliss. The people of Pakistan and other Muslim-majority countries have real grievances. But extremism only makes things worse, always and everywhere. It's not poverty and misery that creates religious extremism; it is religious extremism that creates poverty and misery and death. I'm Harun Ullah, adjunct professor at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service for Prager University. After every new jihadist attack against the West, politicians reassure us that the atrocity does not represent the true nature of mainstream Islam. Of the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, they constantly reassure us the overwhelming majority are as law-abiding as any members of any other monotheistic faith. Only a tiny fraction engage in terror, and Islam is a religion of peace. Furthermore, we are told the great majority of Muslims hold moderate views. But what does that mean? How moderate are moderate Muslims? Given the threat of radical Islam, it would seem to be a fair question. Let me start to answer it by telling you something of my own story. I was raised in a middle-class Muslim home in Cairo, Egypt. Growing up, I was told, among many other things, the following: that every day that passes on the Islamic nation without a caliphate is a sin; that the failures and miseries of the Muslim world. Started the moment we Muslims gave up conquests and wars against the infidels, that our prosperity depended on conquering new lands and converting new believers, that anyone who leaves the faith must die, and I also remember how my teachers and my mosque imams reacted to the news of 9/11 when it happened. Joy. My experience was typical. And there is data to prove it. According to the Pew Research Center, 88% of Muslims in Egypt, 62% in Pakistan, 86% in Jordan, and 51% in Nigeria believe that any Muslim who chooses to leave Islam should be put to death. Similar, if not identical, numbers are in favor of stoning people who commit adultery. Severely punishing those who criticize Muhammad or Islam, and chopping off hands for theft. All of these practices are a part of the penal code of Islamic law, which is known as Sharia. And 84% of Muslims in South Asia, 77% in Southeast Asia, 74% in the Middle East and North Africa, and 64% in Sub-Saharan Africa support Sharia as the law of the land. Less drastic yet significant percentages are to be found even among Muslim communities in the West. So too, most of the world's Muslims believe that any acts of violence against Israel, including suicide bombers in buses and restaurants, are justified. Now, does any of this sound moderate to you? Yet, if anyone raises these inconvenient truths here in the West, He is sure to be called an Islamophobe, a hater of Islam. Again, my own story is instructive. In February of 2015, I was yelled at, cursed at, and successfully prevented from speaking 
at Swarthmore College by students and others who did not agree to what I was saying. Some of them were Muslim women who fit the image of the unveiled, perfect English-speaking moderate Muslim young woman. Other seeming moderates tried and failed to do the same during my speech at Temple University the next day. Some of them, sadly, were students of journalism. It is not Islamophobic to note the tragic fact that at this time in history, the Muslim world is dominated by bad ideas and bad beliefs. That is why millions of so-called moderate Muslims do not rise up to denounce Islamic terror. Because the word moderate, as we understand it, does not really apply. If moderation means you tolerate freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, women's rights, and gay rights, moderate Muslims are a distinct minority. Of course they exist, millions of them, but among believing Muslims, they do not represent anywhere near a critical mass. The values of the West and the values of Islam, as practiced in the Muslim worlds of the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, and more and more in Europe, are not compatible. Western politicians can deny this, but this denial does not change the reality. It is these bad ideas and beliefs that provide the soil in which radical Islam grows. Ignoring this only prevents us from effectively fighting Islamist terror. And at the same time, it hurts those heroic Muslims who really are moderate. Until we begin to tell the truth about Islam, always in respectful language, the only solution to Islamist terror will never take place. I was born to hate Jews. It was part of my life. I never questioned it. I was not born in Iran or Syria. I was born in England. My parents moved there from Pakistan. Theirs was the typical immigrant story. Moved to the West in the hope of making a better life for themselves and their children. We were a devout Muslim family, but not extremist or radical in any way. We only wished the best for everyone. Everyone except the Jews. The Jews we believed were aliens living in stolen Muslim land, occupiers who were engaged in a genocide against the Palestinian people. Our hatred, therefore, was justified and righteous, and it made me and my friends vulnerable to the arguments of radical extremists. If the Jews were as evil as we had always believed, mustn't those who support them, Christians, Americans and others in the West, be just as evil? Beginning in the 1990s, speakers and teachers at mosques and in schools began to endlessly repeat this theme. We were not Western. We were not British. We were Muslims, first and only. Our loyalty was to our religion and to our fellow Muslims. We owed nothing to the Western nations that welcomed us. As Westerners, they were our enemies. All of this had its desired effect. At least, it did on me. It changed the way that I saw the world. I began to see the suffering of Muslims, including in Britain, as the fault of Western imperialism. The West was at war with us, and the Jews controlled the West. My experience at university in Britain only enhanced my increasingly radical beliefs. Hating Israel was a badge of honor. Stage an anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian rally, and you were sure to draw a large, approving crowd. While at university, I decided the protests and propaganda against Israel were not enough. True jihad demanded violence. So I made plans to join the real fight. I would leave college and join a terrorist training camp in Pakistan. But fortunately for me, fate intervened in a bookstore. I came across a book called The Case for Israel by Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz. The Case for Israel? What case could there be? The title itself made me furious, and I began to read the pages almost as an act of defiance. How ill-informed, how stupid could this guy be to defend the indefensible? Well, he was a Jew. That had to be the answer. Still, I read, and what I read challenged all of my dogmas about Israel and the Jews. I read that it wasn't Israel that created the Palestinian refugee crisis, it was the Arab countries, the United Nations, and the corrupt Palestinian leadership. I read that Jews didn't exploit the Holocaust to create the state of Israel. The movement to create a modern Jewish state dated back to the 19th century, and ultimately to the beginnings of the Jewish people almost 4,000 years ago. 
and I read that Israel is not engaged in genocide against the Palestinians. On the contrary, the Palestinian population has actually doubled in just 20 years. All this did was make me angrier. I needed to prove Dershowitz wrong, to see with my own eyes how racist and oppressive Israel really was. So I bought a plane ticket. I would travel to Israel, the home of my enemy. And that's when everything changed. Everything. What I saw with my own eyes was even more challenging than what Dershowitz had written. Instead of apartheid, I saw Muslims, Christians and Jews coexisting. Instead of hate, I saw acceptance and even compassion. I saw a raucous, modern, liberal democracy, full of flaws, certainly, but fundamentally decent. I saw a country that wanted nothing more than to live in peace with its neighbors. I saw my hatred melting before my eyes. I knew right then what I had to do. Too many people on this planet are consumed with the same hatred that consumed me. They have been taught to despise the Jewish state. Many Muslims by their religion, many others by their college professors or student groups. So here is my challenge to anyone who feels this way. Do what I did. Seek out the truth for yourself. If the truth could change me, it can change anyone. I'm Kasim Hafiz for Prager University. You know, we've been telling you all about France's no-go zones, hundreds of Muslim-controlled areas around Paris that outsiders and cops don't dare to explore. They chose just to give it up. We have them here in the United States, too. I bet you did not know that. Nearly two dozen enclaves popping up across nine different states. And watch what happens when a stranger or so an outsider tries to step inside. You on our land I'm down there. But your land is open to the public. Joining us right now, the man behind that camera, founder and president of the Christian Action Network and author of Twilight in America, the untold story of Islamic training camps in America. Martin Moyer joins us right now. Martin, what was taking place right there? Where were you? Well, we were in Red House, Virginia. Uh, it's an isolated community, as most of these compounds are located in rural areas, heavily wooded, inside of the mountainous areas. And what we wanted to do was challenge their open extent, ex, ex, uh, invitation to actually come onto these compounds and see whether they were peaceful or not. So we brought our cameras, we tried to get on, and this is how we got treated. And quickly, this is the whole thing that we're seeing here. What goes on in these campuses? A lot of people say, hey, there are Jewish camps in the country. Christian camps in this company, country, why can't we have a Muslim camp? Because these are truly no-go zones. Unlike the ones in Europe, which I have visited, you can actually walk into those no-go zones. You can walk in with your cameras, you can talk to people, but in these particular no-go zones, you cannot get into. They have gates, they have armed guards, they have security forces, and when you go up into them, you're specifically told to leave these particular areas, and they're particularly dangerous. And we're watching right now, where are we taking, where where are we seeing this footage from? Uh, this is a video they put out for the people inside of the compounds so that they learn how to do terrorist type training. They teach them how to kidnap people, how to strangle them, how to kill guards, how to do guerrilla type warfare training. Uh, and this is what goes on in these isolated no-go zones inside the United States. In America, name some states, name some areas, because you also say they're affiliated with a Pakistani militant group. Yeah, that Pakistani militant group is called Jamaat al-Fruqa, run by Sheikh Jalani, who most people haven't heard of, but that is the guy that Daniel Pearl, Wall Street Journal, was hoping to interview and was arranging to interview when he was kidnapped and then later beheaded. So name some towns, name some cities, name some states. Where are well, you? we have them in Texas, Sweeney, Texas. We have them in York, South Carolina. We have them in Commerce, uh, Georgia. We have them in Red House, Virginia. We have them in upstate New York. We have them in California. We have them in Michigan. Uh, they're scattered all around the United States. So right now, when you call up an officer and say, hey, wait a second, you got an enclave here. This is Islamic extremists being trained on our ground. What is the law enforcement's reaction? Well, the interesting thing about these camps, they're located in very rural areas of America, which has very small police departments. And they intentionally set them up in these areas where, for instance, the one in New York, they have a total of four police officers. I, I want you to hear what you say is a recruitment, the sound of a, a recruitment video. 
video to fill up these camps. Listen. The most welcome will join one of the Where'd you get that? Well, actually, it took about four years to actually locate that video. We knew it existed, and we had someone inside of a law uh, enforcement department out of Colorado who snuck us the tape, and finally we were able to make it public. FBI's reaction? FBI's reaction is, is that, look, you know, they have the First Amendment and other American rights to operate these enclaves in the United States, regardless of the type of weapon training, guerrilla warfare training that's going on inside of them. It's not okay with me, and it certainly doesn't seem to be okay with you. Martin Moyer, thanks so much. President and CEO of the Christian Action Network.